Today, we devote the next half hour to theology. And a little something extra you didn't expect. This is Lanyap Theology. Hello, I'm Dr. Dave Delio from the University of Holy Cross. I'm Professor Todd Amick. And we are in our 11th episode, Season 3 of Lanyap Theology. We've been exploring the the nature of the person so that all the work that we've talked about so far from the Gospel of John, you know, what it means that that Christ gives himself, to our exploration of what theology is, all of that presupposes that there's some person that is in dialogue with God. Right, and, you know, for this season so far, we've talked about history and we've talked about just a word, how, how just one word can mean so much and kind of how it impacts us today. And... Towards the end of our season, what we wanted to do is to begin to talk about the love dimension in person, in God, and how that is kind of fulfilled, especially in the vision of Pope Benedict XVI. And we also want to be able to discuss what are some practical applications of the person, once we've kind of had all this background knowledge, which, by the way, you can get all these episodes as a podcast at Catholic Community Radio. You can also download the app so you can listen to the season. And, you know, I I actually started doing that and just seeing how the continuity, there's a continuity and there's so much divergence in in our episodes, but there is a line that we're tracing. And if you just look and and put in, because a a lot of people aren't used to using technology. I mean, we've got a, certainly a varied audience, but I've, I've had people where they've said like, like, how do I do this? I said, pull out your phone. Look in the little search engine, you know, on your phone and put Lanyap Theology under podcasts. We are the only Lanyap Theology. You'll get all our episodes. In the world. Yes. That's right. There's no <laughs> other one. We are worldwide. If you, if you do find one, please notify the station immediately yeah. so we can listen to theirs. Um, so, so, you know, that's what we, um, that's kind of the, the goal when we set out this season was how do we take a word and see all of its implications in 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 councils, in doctrine, um, and and where we want to end it this season is kind of well, where does this show up in kind of kind of regular everyday questions that we have, right? And and I think uh, the place really where that happens is the place of love. We realize most profoundly what it means to be person in light of that. And the the insight that you you had before, I guess, kind of looking at our episodes, that we had a, a, a focus, but also we touched on social history, culture, certainly philosophy, theology. We, we touched on history and all these other areas. One of my students once said, I, I taught her fundamental theology. It was her first course. And I think at first she might have even been a little bit intimidated. But years later, she came back and she said, and she she studied theology for, for years after that. And we, we had a great rapport and and. And things really developed well, but she said, you were my first theology professor, and the first thing I learned was that in a certain sense, I needed to know everything. That's right. Theology is not an isolated discipline that somehow exists in a vacuum. It, it exists in, in, in our hearts, in our minds, and it's made present in our lives because theology is the study of the way God reveals God's self and in the process reveals us. That's right. And, and you know, I've always said to people, you know, I started off as a, I got a degree in history and then I got a degree in education, a master's degree in education. And 
um, there came a point in time when I was teaching history and I was, I, I became kind of like, uh, it became almost too routine and, um, I, w- I don't want to say boring cause history is never boring, but it be there. I saw kind of a limit and uh, my father was a deacon and, um, I think in season one I went through the story, but I remember there came a point in time where what I wanted to know was everything I could know about God. And what I found out was, in wanting to know about God, I had to know everything else. Right. And so the question of God opens you to the question of everything else. Uh, uh, A a fellow was talking to me last night about physics and, um, and the kind of the relationship of physics and theology. And I was saying to him, uh, you know, a true theologian should always be interested in physics and calculus and, and much to the chagrin of some of my students because God is responsible for that as well in however remote a way, however you want to see that. But if God is responsible for our minds, if God is responsible for the created the creation of this world, then of course that's a obviously much different way than reading the Bible. But it's a way that God can become real and present. It's also a way you can become present to yourself because you're learning how to reason. You're, you're seeing and, and understanding things. Right. And in the absence of that, what we tend to do is we tend to take the faith and make it very narrow and very small. Right. So what we might say is that the faith is social justice and its object is some, some perfection we're going to achieve in this world. Right. Or we say, no, 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 the faith is the external expression of our liturgical act, which is an act of faith, which is a personal and a communal act oriented instead of toward God. It just becomes, what are the external things that we do? Right. So, so in the absence of that comprehensive view, which, which theology demands, what we do is we narrow, and in the process of narrowing God, surprise, surprise, we narrow ourselves. Yeah, and you know, I, and I see that in academic theology a lot too. Is that theologians become specialists to the point where it's almost to the exclusion of anything else. And this is what this this young physicist was claiming to me. And I said, it is true that there are some physicists, uh, some theologians rather, who begin to kind of just forget about all the other things that should be in dialogue with theology there's nothing physics can only touch so many things okay in terms of the the natural sciences the minute you stop asking those questions within that discipline you're now into the realm of philosophy or theology philosophy though has to become aware of both physics and biology and whatnot because in a sense those disciplines have a bearing upon what we do and we bear upon them if biologists and physicists are are open to that Dialogue, right, and and so what we see with theology is that theology encompasses everything else. That's right, and this kind of kind of leads to our our next topic, which is okay. Well, what experience do we have that kind of encompasses everything else? Everything else, you know. And this led me to my my research, and and this has been the research that I've been doing for the last five years, and and it's brought me to philosophy, to theology, to social science, to culture. Um, to certainly to history, uh, because I've been focusing on the thought of Benedict XVI, and in particular, part one of his encyclical Deus Caritas Est. Deus Caritas Est means God is love. And in, 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 in his encyclical, what he offers is that this, this love of God that sometimes we think of as, as pure agape, that God desires the good of us, because of course God is perfect, 
that God desires the good of us, but somehow this relational aspect of what we call eros, and, and I'm going to go back to these definitions a few times because it's, it's helpful to kind of have them, have them refreshed, that eros, which is best described as the experience of being in love, that somehow that can't apply to God. And the result of that, if, if, if we say God is love, God is caritas, and caritas is, is agape, but it's not eros, if we say that, what happens is, then, then where is the experience that I have in life of being in love? of being in romantic love, the experience that I have of being drawn, you know, in union where you just want to cuddle your kids, you know, you just right. don't want to let them go. The experience in friendship, say, you know, in, in, in my past, I, I was a soldier and an operator, you know, the experience where you were living with, with a group of guys, with, with 12 guys in the woods, you know, and, and every bit of your lives, it's like you didn't know where they ended and you began. Right. You know, if, if somebody was hungry, all of us were hungry. If somebody was satiated, all of us were satiated. So this experience of being in love, on one hand, which we call eros, you know, we can, we can describe that as the self-filling love of one that seeks for union. So its goal is union with the beloved. So it's a filling love that seeks for union with the beloved. And this experience over here of agape, where you desire the good of the other, exclusively the good of the other. But if you desire exclusively the good of the other, then, then we're not even talking about union there. Right. And, you know... Um a lot of people are like, you know, it's it's all about unconditional love. And what they're trying to get at is agape. Um, and, you know, I'll listen to some of my students who are moms, and they'll be like, I love my kids unconditionally. And I'll be like, well, not so much. And, 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 and the reason why I would say that is, I'm not saying that they would put preconditions on, you know, why they love their kids or not. Some parents do. Which is unfortunate. Right. But what I would say is that is that we in this world and in this life are a mix of that desire for unitive and that desire for communicative, which is the, the kind of the, the, the giving out, if you will, um, of agape. In that, so there's always, I'm not going to say there's always a catch what I am going to say is that I, I do think what you're laying out is very important for us to understand that the only reality that is fully unconditional is God. At the same time, this God is fully desirous of communion. We are kind of a part part. And, and sometimes we, we, we don't even see how that mix blends and we don't see how it, how it fully works or plays out in our relationships with others. Right, so God is perfect agape, God is perfect gift love, because God is perfect in God's self. Right. right? Missing nothing, needing nothing. Oftentimes, and, and, and we're going to be discussing this over the next three episodes, oftentimes we, we misconstrue what eros is, because our eros is a need-based love, right. or at least we experience in terms of need, whereas God's is, is not a need, because God is perfect. There's nothing lacking in God. Right. And yet, what we'll see is that, that God's love is perfect agape and perfect eros. So what we're pursuing is, uh, how is my experience of love, you know, in all the different iterations, all the ways that we've looked at, related to God, the God that St. John tells us in, in, in 1 John, the God who is love. And this is where Benedict in his encyclical begins. And it kind of gives us two big bookends that for me have, have kind of guided the last five years. Mm-hmm. And, and what I realize more and more is going to guide the rest of my life in, in research. He begins by saying, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God. 
So we're thinking of abiding, right? We're thinking of communion and fellowship, which should kind of say eros a little bit. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So when we experience love, true love, right, the caritas that, 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 that evinces, that shows us God's form of love, in a, in a very real sense, we're abiding in God, God's self, Right. Okay. But then, then that's kind of the front end here. And then uh, Benedict jumps to what, what we'll say is the back end, which is to the joining community. We have come to know and believe in the love God has for us. For us being the operative term. Yes. For us. Right. God's love for us, which is to say, and the term that's used in the, the New Testament is agape. Mm-hmm. is agape, translated later into Latin as caritas. Right. Okay, so God is caritas. Agape is the Greek term that's used, which we associate with with gift love for the good of the other. But what Benedict says is, let's draw that then into the dimension of eros and see that even though the word eros isn't being used, is in fact eros being described through the Bible such that God's love as perfect agape is also perfect eros. Wow. Fascinating. Let's um, let's explore this more on the other side of the break and and kind of see how that's going to be able to translate down into our lives, from the unity of God all the way into our everyday lives. See you on the other side. Hey y'all, this is Matt Picard from Brovers, Louisiana. I'm a senior theology major at the University of Holy Cross, New Orleans. I'd like to tell you why I chose to become a part of the Holy Cross family. My time here has been challenging, but in a good way, the way I want to be challenged. I've grown in mind, heart, and body. As a theology major, I've learned about the Catholic tradition and philosophy while expanding my faith and understanding. My heart has grown in service to others as past theology club president, lecturer at mass, and through a variety of community projects. As a former high school athlete, I've also enjoyed fellowship in sports and activities with my friends at Holy Cross. I could have chosen a variety of excellent majors at the university, but I chose theology because of my passionate desire to know more about God, Christ, and His church. I know with this foundation that whatever I choose, I will be successful and more fulfilled knowing how my faith relates to all that I do. To learn more about our theology program, please visit our website at uhcno.edu theology. Welcome back. We are Lanyap Theology in our 11th episode, and we are on the second half of the show where we were just kind of finished up. You made a, a really, I think, profound point. And this is also what got Pope Benedict in some theological hot water in terms of some people kept wanting to say what Pope Benedict was doing was being a, just a master theologian, was saying, yeah, but if God has to be all the perfections, then this other term of love has to be present with it. And it would have been silly for the sacred author to have wrote, you know, agape slash eros, you know, or right. something like that. Right. It, it wouldn't Especially make... in light of their particular audience. Right. And so, exactly. And so, and this is what the difference between doing theology and, and simply exegeting or, or kind of breaking out the terms of scripture. That theology is... You're, you're looking at sacred scripture and you're trying to bring out, tease out, what are the implications? But you're using your mind, you're using your reason to say, I understand there's a deep doctrine of God and that doctrine of God demands perfection, that God is literally the perfection of all things. 
Meaning he's lacking nothing. Nothing. Right. And so, therefore, if you can just follow the logic, if, if and correct me if I'm wrong here, what Pope Benedict is saying is if in the scriptures we see the word agape, theologically we can say God is all perfect, so therefore he doesn't simply just have agape love, he has all the other dimensions of love in a perfect way too. So you can see there's a reasoning step here, which is if he has this perfection, he also has these perfections. So now let's move over here, shine the light on this word eros and say, how do we understand this perfection? Right, and and what that's going to require is it's going to require a a maturity and a purification of our notion of human eros, right? Which which uh, is typically need based, you know. So we one of the first purifications we have to do is we have to say, well, God's eros is not need based. It can't be from a lack in God. It has to be because of God's perfection, right? And this is Benedict's uh, nuanced. Uh, as you said, somewhat controversial and dynamic uh, development, and the way that that Benedict feels fully uh, fully justified in doing this. Is you know many times in his writing, you know you you hear him say the way the fathers approached the scriptures was not, you know, to say we're going to do a a strict exegesis, right? You know, and it's the words themselves that that kind of of uh, limit right. what we're to do. What they would do is they would look and they would say, well, well. There's an integrity between the words themselves as well as the divine oxio, the action that God is doing. Right. Can, can we therefore say that if the word agape, which is this gift love, desiring the good, seeking the good of the other exclusively, if we have that word there that, that the translators used, but then also if the description of God's action, of God's oxio, because we respond to God, God's action precedes us, this is his initiative, which is also what Eros looks like, if we look at scripture and the description of God's oxio, his actions, his initiative is Eros, then we can say that that God, who is Caritas, is perfect agape and perfect Eros, and then there's the, the commission, which is theologians, mystics, figure it out. Let me ask you this. Did Pope Benedict ever work out something like this prior to Deus Caritas Est? Um, he appeals to, well, actually, he doesn't actually appeal to, which is interesting. You you see in his work, and, and one of the challenges is that much of this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly just looking at works that are in English and a few translations. Um, to be able to see where Benedict gets some of his thought, uh, fortunately, a colleague of ours who, who uh, speaks German and understands German is translating some work of von Balthasar, where we can see kind of the way the dynamic comes. Balthasar is criticizing some different people. But, but this, um, this aspect is not fully developed, which is to say, how can we say that eros preexists in God? Well, I'm, and why am I asking you that? Because... I just want the audience to kind of recognize. Here we have a pope writing an encyclical for the entire church. So this is not, uh, we're going to test this out on theologians and have them battle it out. He is doing theology right before your very eyes in an encyclical, teaching as the way he is. But I want you to understand that's so Benedict. In other words, it's it, he's a maverick. And he's not afraid to do something like that. That's why I was trying to ask, you know, did he write an article on this? Did he write a book on this? And, and, and was it vetted by the Academy? Are there test balloons? And the answer is, we're not seeing that. Right. And, and that's what you're, that's part of what your research is discovering. But I want you to understand, 
how um, amazing and, and neat that is as a, a pastor and shepherd of our church that uh, he's unafraid to kind of go for it. Yeah, and I think our audience is understanding, is, is seeing, you know, uh, what theology is as opposed to catechesis. Benedict is not offering a rehash of the right. catechism, and yet, as, as you read his work, as somebody that is firmly and profoundly grounded in the Catholic tradition, right. you realize there's no inconsistency. That's right. But his work, his research, which is the fruit of prayer, which is the work of, of research and intellect, which is a collaborative work. Right. I mean, he is appealing, and in an encyclical, you typically don't give a lot of footnotes, you know, so part of my job, you know, thanks, Benedict, part of my job was to see some of these key areas and to realize, okay, he's using the, the, the work of so-and-so. Right. Okay, so so I can't delve into the thought of von Balthasar, but but I do need to, to, to signpost, he's speaking here, you know, this, this Trinitarian notion, which he doesn't develop at all in part one, the first time the word Trinity is used is in part two, mm-hmm. beyond, really beyond the scope, I need to be able to footnote and say, okay, this, this Trinitarian notion, which is, is a classic part of, you know, of our, our Christian tradition, that's Augustine there. Right. And signpost, signpost. So what Benedict does is the way he establishes that that eros is in God is is through two keys, and I, I offer them as the 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 two hermeneutics or ways that we appre- appreciate um, uh, the tradition. First of which is eros, uh, you know, which which uh, I call the erotic um, uh, key, and the second of which is rhetoric, meaning that that just as if you're going to try and persuade somebody, uh, as as Aristotle said. On rhetoric, there are three key areas you can appeal to. One of which is 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 the speaker and, and use of of reason. One of and that's called logos. Uh, the second of which is the the character of the person, which is ethos. And the third of which is the emotional content or the way one receives, which is pathos. So if I want to convince you that triple dark chocolate at this gelato place is the best in the world, you know, I can, I can begin by offering an argument about the way that our, our tongues work and sensation and dopamine and serotonin and all of that and give you a great argument. You got to try it. Or what I could say is, you know, that's Lagos ethos. I've been all around the world, had ice cream everywhere, and this is the best. So based just on what I'm saying, you would say, you know what? He knows his ice cream. He sees that that triple jar dark. I look at him and I can tell he's eating some ice cream. Okay, I am <laughs> I am going to to have that ice cream. And the third is pathos, where I would try and stir you to a particular action in this particular audience at a particular time by saying, you know, imagine this experience right now. You're having ice cream. It brings you back to when you were a child. You can reclaim that today. Let's go. And everybody goes, yay. And go. They storm out and they, That's kind it. Of, they raid and rob the ice yes, cream Yes, and shop it's and just... time for, for triple dark chocolate. <laughs> and then Todd goes to jail. But anyways, so, these, yeah, uh, yeah. so these are the, th- the, the two kind of key ways we approach it. The first one, which is requires that we we then say, okay, well, how is eros present in God? Mm-hmm. The way Benedict does that is he first appeals to um, a sixth century, uh, fifth or sixth century uh, Syro-Palestinian, um, the pseudo Dionysius, somebody who claimed the name, likely likely a, a monk, based upon kind of the liturgical content of some of his work. 
um, but somebody who claimed the name of the person that St. Paul at the Areopagus, when he preached there, and we, we, you know, we see this in, in Scripture in the New Testament, that when Paul in Acts preaches to the Areopagus, everybody else laughs and leaves when he says, there's an altar to an unknown God, I have met that God. You know, and these are Greeks, so they're saying, like, what's the philosophy? What's the argument? And he says, there isn't an argument here. There's a relationship. I well, have met him. And moreover, he says, and he's risen from the dead. That's where everybody kind of is like, what? Right, you know, that's right. Where, that's where the, you know, we followed you. Like, we were with you, but then what? Like, no, no, no. You're saying he's a guy who lived in Palestine. Nobody cares about Palestine. We're Greeks. And then he raised from the dead, and that is what is going to kind of change the world. And St. Paul's like, well, yeah, that's that's it. Right. This is the scandal on, right? Right. That which is foolishness that, that they're going to stumble over. And so so this mystic um, takes the name of Dionysius, you right. know, that, that convert there, and, and through... Um, kind of through internal evidence as well as as kind of the way that Dionysius takes um, quotes, sometimes almost word for word from another author, Proclus, we're able to date it in about the 6th century. Right. Uh, this person is, and his writings are profoundly influential on the Christian tradition as a whole. Right. But we see them, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, we see them with St. Thomas, we see them with writers throughout the tradition. And so Benedict appeals to this father of the mystical tradition, which is the way that we, we understand God, not simply through private revelation, Right, but the way that God reveals God's self from within the 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 uh, within the tradition, but at the same time draws um, persons deeper into that, so that they're able to to comprehend in a much deeper way the deposit of faith. Right, and I mean the word mystical comes from the word mystery, which is it's a it's a Greek word mysterion, which means hidden. In other words, that there is. You know, through it's there's there's kind of an accompanying darkness that that brings you into this enlightenment. In other words, it, and what it is is the mystical tradition is it's a way that God is bringing you closer to Himself. Many times through prayer, through spiritual um, spiritual activities. Um, so you know, rarely does theology lead to mysticism, although it has. Saint Thomas Aquinas is one of the great examples of that that you know he, he he's kind of finishing up uh, his summa and he has a a kind of a moment where you know he realizes this is not uh mystical elevation yeah and and, and he has this kind of this understanding that he, he says all i've written is straw now i get people who are mystically oriented who don't necessarily want to do the the hard labor of theology and says well saint thomas said it's all straw so why do i have to do it the, the, the question to them is did you write the summa first right write the summa first <laughs> and then you can say that statement because god made sure that saint thomas gave us that gift and then gave him this gift be able to put his pen down and, and, and call it a day. Right, and to realize, to appreciate the positive content of theology, is which, which meaning certain things we say about God in an analogical way. That's right. Um, but also the negative content, uh, almost like if you were to say, and, and, and this is something that, you know, we said we're going to have certain practical consequences. I think these are meaningful and important. Um, oftentimes, especially people that have been together, married for a very long time, and then we hear, and we realize we have a, a, a mixed crowd, so you know, we, we speak in euphemism sometimes, we hear bad news, right, right. about them. 
Um, what I think often happens is that 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 they've lost the mystery of the other. Right. They think somehow I have fully encapsulated. I've already figured this person out. There's nothing less left to plumb. And in essence, what they've said is this person is no longer a mystery. I figured them out. Not only do we wrongly do that with with human persons, but we also tend to do that with God. That's right. So um, we will. Um well, let's continue on this discussion Absolutely. We have, uh, in, in episode 12 and uh, kind of let's begin talking about, you know, how does this play out? Like, how does this Eros and Agape play out into um, into kind of our everyday world? Right. And how do they also help us to understand human love? All right. Well, we are at the end of episode 11. I'm Dr. Dave Delio. I'm Professor Todd Amick. And we are Lanyap Theology. Lanyap Theology is a production of Catholic Community Radio.